it's the last place in the world a good Christian should be. Look at that, it worked. You know it, <laughs> I know it. I mean, it is, it is a veritable den of iniquity. It's a terrible place. It's a place where people go to, to cuss, to chew, to smoke, to drink and to hang around with those that do. You look like you've been there. <laughs> Unshaven heathen! You know what I'm talking about, church. I'm talking about that place in our culture today that should we in a moment of weakness stumble across the threshold. It's not funny. You will be at the altar before this is over. <laughs> Maybe even now. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's a place where, where the fires of our spiritual passion are quenched and where our witness to see the gospel make a difference through our lives is forever ruined. You know what I'm talking about, right? You do. You've been there. Let's say it together. Of course, we're talking about Bowling alleys, right? And all God's people said, huh? Now let's try that again. And all God's people said, huh? All right, that's what you're supposed to do. So guys, here's the deal. If you had attended my grandparents and my great-grandparents' church back about 70 years ago in Fredericton, New Brunswick, you would have heard preaching a little like that. There might have been a little more spit flying. There might have been a few more amens. There certainly would not have been anyone in the room who had questioned that going to bowling alleys was the, or not going to bowling alleys was the 11th commandment. So what happened? You know, here we are in 2014. We are in the chapel of, dare I say, unashamedly, unapologetically, the best institution of higher education in the Wesleyan Church today. Amen. And there's... It again. All right. And... And there's, there's not a single person in this place who had a clue that I was talking about the very obvious den of iniquity in our culture, bowling alleys. Now, now before, before you think that I am standing here to mock the, the peculiar absurdities of my heritage, you, you've got it way wrong. I love my heritage. I lean into my heritage. I am grateful for my heritage. In fact, I believe with all my heart that 70 years ago, when a little band of Christ followers in Marysville, New Brunswick, chose not to go to bowling alleys, it was in fact the Holy Spirit-directed right thing to do. So what happened? In the face of 
the ever-changing culture of our time. What, what happens when, when convictions, spiritual convictions, meet mainstream culture? Well, I need to speak to the elephant in the room, and uh, here is the, uh, here's the elephant in the room. And as you, as you take a look at these, um, I was on a mission trip with Kirk Saban a few years ago, and we were in the vehicle behind him, and um, he was actually in that vehicle, and uh, we just kind of took pictures. This was like unbelievable. Um, as, as culture met convictions, it got a little bit, got a little bit dicey, you know? And uh, I'm not really sure what was going through the mind of that elephant at that moment, but I am pretty sure I know what was going through the mind and perhaps other body parts of the people in that vehicle at this moment. And so um, here's what happened next. And some of you must have been woken in the middle of the night to pray for Kirk because when the car landed like that, everybody was out unscathed. Actually, I'm lying. Kirk was not in that car. I just thought I'd get your attention if I said that. But you know, when I get to heaven, there's a number of things I wanna, I wanna ask people in heaven. And I'm, I'm hoping, I'm assuming that the people in this vehicle especially if they died in that accident, I'm sure that they confessed their sins to God and were gloriously saved in the moments that we just witnessed. And I will meet them in heaven, but I'm gonna ask them, what was going through your mind? And at what point did you need to change your underwear in those series of pictures? I'm just kind of wondering about that. Here, here's the deal. Here's what I want you to, to focus on this morning for just a few minutes. When on the road of our spiritual journey, when mainstream culture meets the spiritual convictions of our lives, there are going to be times when the conflict that results will leave one of those things in the ditch. And I wanna talk a little bit about what that means in the face of our ever-changing culture today. You know, uh, this, this could be a, a rather graphic definition in a fresh way of road rage, I suppose. But what I want to talk to you about this morning are the rules of the road when it comes to our personal convictions in the face of an ever-changing culture. We're going to look at five of those, and we're going to motor along here pretty quick, all right? So uh, feel free to follow along in the verses that are referenced. I'm not going to be reading all of them, uh, but I do want to talk about what I think uh, Paul gives us in his letter to the, to the church in Rome that are very clear principles that each of us can apply, the rules of the road, so to speak, for us in our journey of faith when it comes to developing and maintaining personal convictions in our own lives, in the community of believers that God has called us to be a part of, uh, in the face of the ever-changing culture around us. Rule number one is, is simply this. Accepting without correcting. Accepting without correcting. Uh, this is clearly taught in the verses that you see listed there. And, and the point that the apostle Paul makes uh, is an important beginning. He doesn't try to make a case for this. It, it's an axiom. It's a self-evident truth. It's just something assumed. He says it right there in verse 1. There will be disputable matters in the body of Christ in the face of ever-changing culture. There's just gonna be. 
Whether you like it or not, there will be gray areas, things that we look at two different ways. Some of us like things to be in black and white. Well, here it is in Romans 14, in black and white, there is no guarantee that everything will be black and white. There will be gray areas. There will be disputable areas. Uh, Or as the version authorized by good old King James says, doubtful things. So, of course, we're not talking about the things that aren't doubtful, like killing your roommate because they didn't clean up or, you know, cheating on your taxes or lying on a collateral reading report. Or, you know, there's certain things that are just not in question uh, when it comes to what is gray and what isn't gray. Uh, So let's just get that out of the way. But what I want to say is this. When you encounter a disputable matter on the road of our shared faith journey, you need to be accepting without correcting. That's what Paul taught. He's saying we should accept people without an ulterior motive of arguing about our differences. The New English Bible phrases it like this. Without attempting to settle doubtful points. You know, we see in verses three and four that someone who has freedom should not condemn someone who doesn't and vice versa. Why? Because God has accepted them. And we need to not miss this very important point. If someone calls themselves a Christian, but interprets a passage of scripture differently or exercises liberty in a gray area that I'm not comfortable with, then verse three says, I should begin with the belief that God has accepted them. I shouldn't look down on them and they shouldn't look down on me. Just before we move on on this, I I think, sadly, I think we would all agree and perhaps most of us in this room would have a story or two to tell of of people who who have allowed their response to the judgmentalism and the legalism of the church to push them away from what could have been a full and abundant life of seeking God and knowing his holiness. And so it's very important for us as, as we face the issues that you guys are talking about this, uh, through this series and looking at culture and what it means for us to embrace a journey and the pursuit of holiness within community in the face of an ever-changing culture. It's important for us uh, to understand what the Bible says. The Bible says, to his own master, he stands or falls. And in gray areas, unless someone directly solicits our opinion or perspective, we need to keep quiet and let our opinion about disputable matters not interfere with the journey the master has given to someone else. Amen? That's, that's what he says. Verse 22 spells it out even further. When Paul says, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. You know, God can read hearts. You can't. Let the Holy Spirit do his job. So rule number one of the road is be accepting without correcting when it comes to disputable matters. Rule number two is simply this. We need to understand weak faith. Uh, In verses one and two, Paul makes reference to the fact that, that some faith can be weak. So what does it mean in the context of personal convictions in the face of culture? Well, I mean, that would be easy for us to spend a whole series of messages on. Perhaps some of the other people that have been asked to speak in chapel have addressed some of those things. But, but you know the basic background for this. You, you, had, you had Jews who had accepted Christ as the Messiah. 
and you had Gentiles who had accepted Christ as the Messiah. And they had come to faith in Christ in this, in this Roman community. And, and the Jews, while they clearly had the freedom to eat some of the things that they were not allowed to eat when they were Jews alone, uh, they struggled with that freedom. For whatever reason, there were issues that made it difficult for them to step out in full faith and exercise that freedom and liberty. And, and so we had this dietary struggle that was going on uh, for the sake of conscience between these groups. And, and the problem was, was that they were looking down on each other. And Paul was basically saying, guys, cut it out. And that was the, the heart of what he was saying here. God accepts those who have not fully developed in their freedoms just as much as those who have no baggage from the past. What you do or don't do in the gray areas is a reflection of the understanding and maturity of your own journey, but it does not mean that the personal convictions you have or don't have are right or wrong for anyone but yourself or any less or more important than anyone else's convictions. A couple years ago, I I had the privilege, as uh, Scott mentioned, when I was serving with Global Partners to chair the uh, national conference for our Wesleyan Church in Indonesia, about 5,000 members strong, largest Muslim country of the world, and uh, very fascinating experience, uh, the only time that I've traveled there. Uh, But you would be surprised to know, maybe I was, that one of the key points of tension in that conference between two of our five districts in that country was over the issue of what is okay for Christians to eat or not eat based on the, on the cultures that they were coming out of and, and, uh, and the way that was affecting the journey of their holiness and the personal convictions they were developing. But, but here, here's the good news for all of us. I, I think it's good news. It's good news for me. God's love gives us personal guidelines. I love that. I need that. In my journey of faith, God knows me so intimately that as I surrender myself to him and as I I lean into him and lean into authentic community with my brothers and sisters in Christ, God will give me clear guidelines in the gray areas for what best serves my walk of journey uh, in faith for that season of my life, for my witness in the culture that I'm serving in, for what it means for me to experience wholeness in the biblical community that God has called me to be a part of. He will give that to me through his spirit. That's wonderful news. It's great news. Before you will be able to properly develop your own personal convictions, you have to understand and be willing to accept you may simply be weaker in some areas than other Christians, which is normal. And it may require, on God's part, For him to lovingly direct you to have a little less liberty for the sake of your walk with him and for the sake of how he wants to use you in the ever-changing face of the culture around you. Tool number two, rule number two is understanding weak faith. Let's look at rule number three. Rule number three simply is the limitations of liberty. The limitations of liberty. So the governing principle of this rule is simply this. Our relationship with one another is more important 
than embracing our liberty. I want you to say that with me. Our relationship with one another is more important than embracing our liberty. Let's say it again. Our relationship with one another is more important than embracing our liberty. The verses that are listed there make very clear that when we pass judgment on one another and that when we, we thumb the nose of our liberty in the face of weaker brothers or younger believers, that it is an incredibly unloving thing to, to do. We're not acting in love. It distresses our brothers and sisters. It places stumbling blocks in their lives. You see, the danger of a weak faith, I suppose, could be a tendency to legalism, a list of rules of do's and don'ts that supposedly apply to everybody in the same way everywhere. But the danger, the other side, may be a door that opens to license. We're gonna look at those more in a minute. But the point of Romans 14 is that both of those extremes can suffer from the danger of judging. If you have freedoms and liberties in certain gray areas, don't express them in a way that could confuse, hurt, or contribute to the spiritual decline of other people in your spiritual family who have personal convictions in those same areas because love is conspicuously absent when that happens. Those with certain freedoms should respect without any need for explanation that God has very important reasons for giving someone else seemingly opposing convictions. Uh, Bible scholar Ray Stedman puts it like this. He says, it's not loving to force people to move at your pace, to refuse to indulge a freedom that you have for the sake of someone else to adjust to their pace is surely one of the clearest and truest exercises of Christian love. When was the last time you loved someone like that? So rule number three says we should express our Christian love by placing the health of our relationships in the body as a greater value than the way we exercise our freedoms in disputable matters. That is the loving limitation of liberty. Let's look at rule number four. Let conscience govern liberty. Let conscience govern liberty. Put, put another way, there's, there's no room in the kingdom for spiritual autopilot. When God puts us on, on the road of faith, he does not give us a vehicle that has cruise control. He does not want us just to shift into one mode and then stop listening and stop thinking and stop communing with him and with one another in ways that affect the tempo and pace and trajectory of our spiritual life. Listen to verse 14. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him, it is unclean. You see, a personal conviction versus a spiritual liberty is a matter of the heart in God's eyes. It's a matter of the heart. Trust me, Paul did not suffer uh, from, from being unpopular in saying strong things that people disagreed with. He could have said in this letter to the church in Rome, guys, it's crystal clear. Peter had the vision. You can eat the pig. Have some bacon, have some ham, get over it already. I mean, he could have done that, but, it, but he didn't do that. In fact, he gave us very clear directions that were different from that. 
You need to listen to your conscience with regard to the gray areas. And so you see the little formula that, that I developed there based on verses 22 and 23. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Disputable matters plus doubt minus faith equals sin. So even though we're talking about gray areas, even though we're talking about personal convictions in our own journey of holiness in the face of an ever-changing culture, it's not just about agreeing to disagree. It can result in our own spiritual journey in us having a sin issue with God over what we do with those convictions. If you're currently exercising liberty in a disputable matter and you have any doubt in your mind that what you're doing is right for you in the eyes of your heavenly father, then Romans 14 says, you're sinning. Stop it. Doesn't matter what other people do. When you do that, that's called exercising spiritual license and it will cool everything that God wants to bless you with in your life with him and in your effectiveness in reaching the world for him. When you have no accountability to your own conscience and you do whatever you want without truly asking God to show you the freedoms or personal convictions that best suit your level of maturity in the pursuit of holiness, then it is sin. And so, so one possible extreme can be, can be a weak faith that leans into the cruise control of legalism. But, but in the pendulum swing of our journey of holiness in the face of an ever-changing cu- uh, culture, God wants us to rest in and to experience the power of liberty in the bottom part of that swing, in the tick-tock of the grandfather clock of the church. He wants us to rest there, but, but just like legalism is something that I watched over the 40-plus years of my life, the church break free of and swing away from, we are dare I say, in incredible danger of swinging right through the bandwidth of acceptable liberty and swinging in the equal sin of autopilot, of cruise control, into living lives of spiritual license. You know, as binding as legalism can be, a life of license often has far greater consequences. You guys know what a legalist is, right? A legalist is a person who lives in mortal terror that someone somewhere is enjoying themselves. And that's a legalist. All right? So, so, so we've, we've let go of that. All right? We're not suffering from that anymore. But what about, what about that swing? What, what does our culture and our presence of holiness in this culture say about where the boundaries of liberty lie for us. You know, many of us have parents or grandparents or some kind of spiritual history that was, was by today's standards, legalistic in some way. And, and people were so turned off by the rules and regulations and needing to live the way other people thought you should, especially in anything that might remotely run the risk of being a disputable matter. But we've broken free of that bondage. Folks, it's going to be up to you and me and many others not in this room who are leaders of the church today 
to call the church to lean into the power of real holiness that invites the fact that we are individuals on a journey with all of our baggages and all of our weakness. And yes, it's under grace and we've come to God, but as he continues to transform us through his spirit, he loves us so much that he wants to say to some of us on this gray area, your, your swing needs to be a little smaller. On this gray area, for you, it can be a little bigger, but maybe when you're together, you'll choose out of love for that to be a little smaller for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. If we're not careful to listen and personally and corporately apply the timeless principles of these rules of the road of Romans 14, that pendulum will swing all the way from legalism to license. Cruise control and spiritual autopilot look the same in either extreme. Before we know it, our churches will be filled with people who give lip service to developing personal convictions in their pursuit of holiness, when in reality, they will simply do whatever suits their own desires in the gray areas without any thought or concern about their own conscience or those who are weak in the faith around them. We simply cannot afford to coast on spiritual cruise control. Let me give you an example of someone who shifted into autopilot. A friend of mine heads up the Jesus Film Ministry for uh, the Wesleyan Church. We have 43 Jesus Film teams around the world. And uh, last year, through the Jesus Film Ministry alone in the Wesleyan Church, there were 103 new churches planted, uh, advancing the kingdom against the gates of hell all around the world. I say praise God for that. Wonderful thing. Amen. Now, for those of you who don't have the liberty to clap when you worship, you can say amen, but you know, we wanna keep the community here, all right? In the pendulum swing of our liberty, all right? Uh, exciting though, so, so John Croft is his name. Some of you may know him. He's actually the uncle of, of uh, Graham Perry's wife, the Reverend Rebecca Perry. And, uh, and, and John was, has this little tradition that he enjoys with, with his kids. All his kids are in their 20s now, but all throughout their growing up years and even today, he will, he will ask them and invite them to come with him just one-on-one -on -one, and they will fly to some ballpark somewhere in the States to watch his favorite ball team, the Cincinnati Reds, all right? And uh, so apparently he likes to watch teams lose a lot and that's fine. I mean, he can do that. He has the free will to do that. And so a year ago, May, he uh, had flown with his, his middle daughter, Brooke, to Washington, D.C., and they had watched the Reds play the Nationals. And they were back in the Dulles Airport in Washington, getting ready to come back. And, um, and, and uh, John, uh, his daughter, Brooke, was right behind him, and John had taken off his belt and his shoes and put them in the bin, and all of a sudden, he was just getting ready to shove that in that little machine, and all of a sudden, this woman came flying out of nowhere like a banshee, just screaming, oh, I'm going to miss my flight, I'm going to miss my flight, oh, I'm going to miss my flight, I'm going to miss my flight. And she ran and intended fully to go straight through the security check without stopping and rush to catch her flight, expecting that they would be okay with this. Well, like a swarm of locusts, 
TSA agents appeared out of everywhere, the ceiling, the walls, the floors. It was like a zombie movie. And they, they pummeled on her. It was like World War Z all over again. So there you go. Now you know my personal convictions allow me to watch movies. You figure that out. And so, so this woman is, is covered with TSA agents. You can't see her. And all of a sudden, John said, I heard myself saying under my breath, what am I doing? as I was folding my pants and putting them on top of my shoes and my belt to go through the security check. His daughter, Brooke, was behind him and she was undoing her shoes and as she made her eyes up his hairy leg and she saw the bottom of his boxers, she said, Dad! And he grabbed his pants and he unfurled his pants and he pulled them on quickly, knowing in his heart that no one but his daughter, Brooke, had seen this. Or so he thinks. You see, when he told me about this the next week, I said, John, 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 really? Really? You think no one else has seen that? I guarantee you that every TSA agent in the United States of America has watched that video a thousand times since last week. I said, the next time you go to the airport and show your ID card, watch what happens. There are worse things that can happen than taking your pants off in an airport when you're in autopilot. And I'm here to tell you today two things. Number one, you will forever thank me for telling you that story. And you will tell someone else that very story before your head hits the pillow tonight. I guarantee it. Every one of you will do that because it's a great story. And unlike the story about Kirk Saban in the car, it's completely true. And so enjoy sharing that. The second thing that I want to say is this. When we set the spiritual cruise control on in our lives and we stop listening to the Spirit's guidance in our pursuit of holiness, the pendulum eventually swings out one way or the other of God-directed liberty into either legalism or license. In church, I'm not prepared to settle for that. I'm just not. God has something better for us in our own walk and in the life of our church as we give the devil a black eye and we advance the kingdom against darkness for the generations to come because God's power is so strong. He is so great and he wants to make a difference as he transforms us from the inside out. He will transform the world through us by the power of his Holy Spirit, which leads us to our very last tool. I'm going to invite Austin to come. You see, the ultimate goal is not to see who has the most personal convictions or the greatest freedom. The ultimate goal is to glorify God and edify each other. Verse 6 talks about our expressions in disputable matters being motivated by our desire to do them or not do them as unto the Lord. The ultimate goal is to glorify God. I mean, isn't that what you want to do with your life? That's what I want to do with my life. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. When it comes to the non-essentials, the gray areas, the disputable matters, our ultimate goal should always be to glorify God and edify others, which leads us to the two most important verses in the entire chapter. We're going to land on these 
Uh, in verses 11 and 12, we see what's kind of the final road inspection of our lives. You see, Paul was inspired to write, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, willingly or unwillingly, as that's going to happen. Let's go be salt and light. Let's make Jesus famous.